Good morning, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name is Matt, and I'm currently an intern here at Faith Covenant. So a little bit about me. I'm originally from Queens, New York, but right now I'm a student at Wheaton College, and I'm approaching my junior year while studying Christian formation and ministry. So in my spare time, I love reading, eating, and I'm also a part of Wheaton College's wrestling team. So I spend a lot of my time training as well. And so before I begin, I also want to thank Pastor Nate for the opportunity to preach and all of you guys here for being so welcoming this summer. As far as my style of learning goes, outlines and summaries help me a ton. And so I'll outline my sermon for you right now. The overarching question I want to ask all of you is, what do you value? And to answer that question, I'm going to ask you all three additional sub-questions. First, what do you do with what God has given you? So again, what do you do with what God has given you? Second, who do you want to be honored by? Again, that's who do you want to be honored by? And lastly, what reward are you looking for? What reward are you looking for? Let's dive into the text. Verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. By them. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So this principle applies to the following three spiritual disciplines that Jesus mentions in, next in chapter 6. For Jewish people at the time, charity, prayer, and fasting were the three main rites that demonstrated well, your righteousness. And as Jesus goes deeper into these three things in chapter 6, he goes into detail about not practicing these three things in order to be praised by others. Because then, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So that implies that there is a reward for doing these things in a way that aligns with God's heart. And I'll go more into that in a bit. Verse 2 begins with, thus, when you give to the needy. And notice the word when here. For Jews in the first century, being charitable, it was a given. Scholar William Barclay writes that for a Jewish person, to give alms and be righteous were one and the same thing. It should go without saying that disciples of Jesus will be generous givers to the poor. Jesus isn't telling people here to give. He's telling them how to give. But before I go into how to give, I'm going to ask you if you give, because we can't skip straight to step two if we haven't already gone through step one. Jesus is speaking here to people who are pretty new to following him. And there were probably people in the crowd who followed him just because he was becoming famous. So how many of you know someone who would want to go meet a famous celebrity? just because they're famous. How many of you are that person? I'm sure that there are conversations between friends that went something like this. Hey, I heard Jesus is in the area. We should see if we can go meet him. Um, who? You know, Jesus, the famous rabbi. I've been hearing stories about him, and I heard he's been healing and stuff. I don't, I don't really know. I didn't listen to many of the stories I was told. All, all I know is that he's famous. You win? Um, yeah, sure. If he's getting pretty famous, he probably has some good stuff to say. 
yeah, sure, I'll come with you. And so Matthew 4.25 says that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus is talking to people from a bunch of different areas who possibly barely knew anything about him and people who had just begun to follow him. And in verse 2, Jesus assumes that these people already give to the needy. For me, this was extremely convicting because generosity to the needy is definitely something that I struggle with. Here I am, calling myself a disciple of Christ, telling people that I want to live my life for Christ and Christ alone, and I'm struggling to be charitable when Jesus is talking to people who are new to following him. And charity, it's already a given. Jesus then says, when you give to the needy. So, who counts as the needy? The Old Testament law placed a major emphasis on the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners. And I'm going to highlight Exodus 22, verses 21 and 22 as one of the texts that show this. And it says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And keep in mind, this is just one of the many, many texts that show this. In God's eyes, these people are the needy, the poor, the people who have no money or possessions, the orphans and widows, people who have lost their loved ones and seem to have no one there to love them, the foreigners, people that seem out of place, who are new to a people group, people who have to make that extra effort to fit in, and people who probably unintentionally do something that rubs you the wrong way. These are the people that we're called to give to. And so back to our first question, what do you do with what the Lord has given you? Do you have spare change or possessions? Give it away. See a lonely person? Invite them to be a part of your family. See the transfer student at school or a new coworker coming to the office? Walk alongside them and show them how things work. You know, at times though, it might seem like you don't have a lot to give. And when that's the case, I want you guys to remember the story of the widow's mite. In it, in Luke 21, it tells us that Jesus saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, and he's referring to the rich here, for they contributed out of their abundance, but she in her poverty put in all that she had to live on. In fact, I'd be willing to say that if that widow put in one coin, Jesus would have praised her for giving, her, for giving half of what she had. So what has God given you? And how can you use that to serve the needy? Because even if you might not have, have a lot materially, if you give out of the abundance of your heart, that's all that God really wants from you. And so to recap, what are you doing with what God has given you? Are you giving it to the needy? Now let's dive into the next part of verse 2. It says, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Right away, I wonder what sounding no trumpet means. 
And after reading through a bunch of commentaries, honestly, I'm still not entirely sure what it means. But there's a lot, there's a lot of possibilities. The phrase, sound no trumpet before you, might simply be metaphorical, like the phrase, toot your own horn. Or it might be literal, as the offering chest and the trumpet were called trumpet chests because the mouth of the chest was trumpet-shaped to ensure that once you put in a coin, nobody could take it back out. Sounding a trumpet in this context could mean tossing your coins into, into the chest really loudly so that others could hear. Another possible expl explanation, according to Pastor Kent Hughes, is that Jesus is, is describing the sound of the temple trumpets that called on citizens to come and give, leading many people to run towards the temple to show off their supposed zeal for the Lord. And I'm sure that there's a lot of other possible explanations for this, but Jesus' message seems pretty clear. If one sounded trumpets while they're giving, they wouldn't be giving out of a desire to meet the needs for the poor, but to glorify themselves. Jesus says that these people are hypocrites. In Greek, the word used here is hypocrites, which is used to describe an actor on the stage of a theater. Many actors live for the thrill of standing ovations and awards presented for excellent performances. They live for the pleasure of others. And so back to our second question, who do you want to be honored by? The hypocrites to whom Jesus referred were spiritual actors who pretended to have a devotion to God that they really didn't have in order to inspire the applause of a human audience. And so over the past two years of living in a dorm, shout out to my boys at T6, um, we've done something almost every Sunday evening called man cakes. And so the premise of man cakes is that every Sunday evening, the men of T6, hence the man, shares testimonies over pancakes, hence the cakes. And so something that I've heard pretty often over the past two years of man cakes is something along the lines of, I grew up in a Christian household, but my faith didn't become my own until. And I'm sure that for many of these guys, they went through a period of time where they acted like they loved Jesus in front of their parents, but in reality, they weren't. And I'm sure that when their faith became their own and they truly loved Jesus, something clear changed them. My challenge to all of you is to live in a way where it's very clear that you're in the my faith became my own phase and not the I grew up in a Christian household, but phase. Make it evident by the way that you live your life that what's important to you is actually what's important to you. That being, living a life that points to the love of Christ. If you're going to make a bunch of noise as you're giving, make sure the praise is given to God. Strive to be someone that when you're brought up in conversation, it's very clear that everything you do is for Christ and his kingdom. Shout out to Wheaton College with that one. Now, how exactly do we do that? Before I mentioned that in verse 2, Jesus isn't telling us to give. He's telling us how to give. He makes it very clear in verse 3 that giving, but 
not being an actor about it. It's a very fine line. And so how do we do it? According to verse 3, the answer is to give in secret, if that's what it takes to not seek the praise of others. Now, I include the phrase, that's what it takes to not seek the praise of others, because that's a key part that's often misunderstood about this passage. A lot of readers see this verse, and they automatically assume that giving should always be done in secret, no matter what. But in Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we keep our giving and good works a secret, thinking that this is what Jesus, Jesus wants, how can we obey the, this earlier part of his sermon? We're told here to let our light, our giving and good works, shine before others so that they may see our good works. Taken at face value, seems like Jesus is contradicting himself. But in our giving, we should strive to show others that, as James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And not only that, but Hebrews 10.24 tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so another reason our giving can be public is to challenge other believers to step up their level of generosity and experience the joy and blessing that comes from increased, obedient, genuine giving. I think scripture makes it very clear that we should make our good deeds known to others. So why does Jesus tell us in verse 3 to give so secretly that our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand is doing? I mean, how's that even possible? What Jesus seems to be saying is that as, follow, as followers of Christ, we should make our good deeds known so people will glorify God. But if our motives are in the wrong place and we want to sound a trumpet about it, letting everyone know what we're doing for our own praise, then it's best to be generous in secret so that the praise isn't misplaced. In fact, Jesus uses such an extreme image because if one hand knows what the other hand is doing, then we might seek to praise ourselves for our giving. But don't keep a journal of what you've given. Don't keep track of it at all. Forget your own goodness and remember God's goodness. Do it and forget it. As I've done research on this passage, I've come across three common motives for giving. First, Someone might give from a sense of duty just because they think, they think it's the right thing to do. Second, a person might give to get themselves the praise of giving. If no one noticed you giving or no one praised you for giving, would you still give? And third, a person might give simply because the overflowing love and kindness in their heart will allow them to do no other. They might give because try as they might, they can't rid themselves of a sense of responsibility for a person in need. Jesus seems to tell us that we should strive to be like that third person. And a great help to being on the path to doing so is to give in secret. If you're tempted to be like that second person who gives to get themselves the glory of giving. We can't fake the part 
about being a follower of Christ just because we live in a Christian household. So again, if you're tempted to be charitable in order to receive praise for yourself, then it's best to set yourself boundaries and give in secret. And our final question is, what reward are you working for? Verse 4 ends by saying that your father who sees in secret will reward you. So what is that? So what is that reward? But I wanted to ask you first, what reward are you working for? Because then we can see if your reward matches up with Jesus's. But first, I want to acknowledge that for a lot of you, the idea of doing something good to receive a reward from God, it might rub you the wrong way. But it's important to note that Jesus himself thought in terms of rewards. He just didn't think in terms of material rewards. It's also important to note that reward has less to do with our own merit and more to do with God's irrepressible generosity. So again, our reward has less to do with our own merit and more to do with God's irrepressible generosity. For the hypocrites, verse 2 tells us that their reward is to be praised by others. And Jesus telling us that they've received the reward in full means that yes, they've gotten what they've desired, but that's all they're going to get. In fact, the word translated for reward here is apecho, which is a term used for transactions and a means to receive a sum in full and get a receipt for it. Because the reality is, these hypocrites, they're not, rece- they're not giving, they're buying. And they'll get what they paid for, but nothing more. So what reward are you working for? Because whatever you truly desire your reward to be right now, you're probably going to get it, but you're not going to get anything more. Is it going to fulfill you? So what is this reward that Jesus is talking about here? I've come across quite a few, a few explanations, and a number of commentators have stated that simply knowing God better is reward itself. William Barclay notes two more potential rewards, one being still more work to do. And so it's the paradox of the Christian idea of reward that a task well done, it doesn't bring rest and comfort and ease. It brings still greater demands and more strenuous endeavors. In the parable of the talents, the reward of the faithful servant was still a greater responsibility. And when a teacher gets a really brilliant and able scholar, that scholar isn't exempt from work, that scholar is, giving, is given more and harder work than everyone else is given. The final reward that Barclay mentions is what he calls the vision of God. He says, if a man takes his own way, he drifts farther and farther from God. The gulf between him and God becomes ever wider until in the end, God becomes a grim stranger whom he only wishes to avoid. But... If a man all his life has sought to walk with God, if he has sought to obey his Lord, if goodness has been his quest through all his days, then all his life he has been growing closer and closer to God until in the end he passes into God's nearer presence without fear and with radiant joy. And that is the greatest reward of all. 
We should live to please God and not man for the Father's pleasure and reward, not the reward that is praised from others. And so I want to close today with a C.S. Lewis quote. It says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. So as C.S. Lewis puts it, to live in the state of the man who only looks for reward in the form of their own praise is to live in a state of hell. Then, you'll realize that everything you've ever wanted is, as the teacher of Ecclesiastes puts it, vapor. There seems to be something there, but when you grab at it, you realize that you've been chasing nothingness the whole time, and what will truly fulfill you is the reward that God has for you. So to recap, and I'll have an outline of the sermon put up on the screens, the overarching questions I want you guys to be thinking about today is, what do you value? And three sub-questions you can think about as you ask yourself that question are, what do you do with what God has given you? Who do you want to be honored by? And what reward are you working for? Is what we value the possessions that the Lord has given us? Is what we value our reputation? These are all slippery slopes that can be great, or they can lead us to hell, as C.S. Lewis describes it. What we offer to the Lord should be given in love and gratitude to the Heavenly Father who has given us all that we have and more than we could ever dare to hope for. And so as you continue to reflect on this passage, I'd like to invite you all to do whatever it takes to not be like the hypocrites that Jesus mentions, while striving to be continuously more generous with all that the Lord has given you and pointing to what Christ has given us. After all, Christ gave us his life. And whether or not you think you have anything material to give, we can always give away some aspect of our lives. So what does it mean for us to pick up our cross and imitate how Jesus himself gave? And so finally, in an effort to not have this be completely, completely forgotten by the time we walk out of this sanctuary, I want to invite you all to take the next 30 seconds or so and take out your journals, bulletins, or anything else that you can take notes on right now to write down at least one person in need that you can give your resources to. And I would encourage you also to write down a specific resource or resources that you can give to that person. And keep in mind that the resources you give don't just have to be material or financial. They can be whatever the Lord has blessed, has blessed you with. Whoever and whatever the Lord places on your heart, take whatever precautions you need to do it all for his glory, for his glory and not your own.